reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take India and indeed the world to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IEA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IEA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. If you've been following this season of Innovation Frontlines, you're in for a very different discussion today. Because, Siddharth, I'm sorry to say that we've reached episode 10 already. Indeed, Simon. Uh, I honestly cannot even believe that we are at the season finale already. Uh, We've always known that the season was going to be 10 episodes long, but I can't believe how fast it's passed. Yeah, so this is going to be the last episode we record for a little while. And I don't know about you, but I'm certainly feeling the pressure of making sure that we give it a good send off. As you know, I mean, the really good news here is that we've got some great guests that are going to help us with this one. But just to remind the listeners, in all the episodes prior to this, we've invited some of India's brightest energy entrepreneurs to tell the stories of how they're trailblazing a narrow path from research lab to market. We've learned what it's taking to successfully disrupt different parts of the energy system and what key factors are helping or hindering energy transitions in India. Our hope with this set of interviews is that they can provide a permanent and useful resource for anybody interested in clean energy innovation, technology, policy, and entrepreneurship, and in particular, uh, the community of people in India who are interested in these topics. And in the spirit of that, we'd love to have listeners help in spreading the word about the podcast, sending us feedback, and also submitting reviews. That's all going to help us as we consider the regions and topics that the IEA should cover in its material next. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at S.I.J. Bennett. And I'm at Siddharth 3. Now, in today's season finale, we'll be reflecting on some of the common themes that we have heard during the interviews with the founders. One of the main objectives of the IEA is to distill some of the insights about the world around us to help enable governments to make better decisions on matters of energy security, access, and clean energy transitions. In this particular case, our objective was to find insights that would help accelerate clean energy innovation in India. Of course, if you haven't listened into the previous episodes, don't worry. This one will still make sense to you. But of course, we still recommend that you go back and enjoy in detail all the inspirational stories of the innovators and their exciting journeys as they develop their clean energy technology solution.
for today's discussion, we have an all-star lineup to introduce. And you know, really, thanks to everybody on this panel for giving us some of their precious time. To give us the view from the government of India, we have Professor Ajay Sood, the recently appointed Principal Scientific Advisor and Chairman of the Prime Minister's Science, Technology and Innovation Advisory Council in India. Due to his busy schedule, we recorded our conversation with Professor Sood separately, and you'll hear that towards the end of the show. Fortunately, however, our other three special guests are all able to join us together and are with us right now. Let's introduce them and bring them into the conversation. First, we have Mihir Sharma. Mihir is a senior fellow at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi, and he's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He's the author of the 2015 book, Restart. It's an economic policy recipe for unleashing the creativity of a billion hopeful Indians. Hi, hello everybody. Great, hi Mihir. Padmaja Ruparel is co-founder of India Angel Network and a founding partner at IAN Fund the single largest seed and early stage investment platform in India. She is also a member of India's National Expert Advisory Committee on Innovation, Incubation and Technology Entrepreneurship and has been recognized as one of Forbes India's 30 most powerful women in India. Hi, everybody. Good to connect. And finally, we have Akshat Rati, senior reporter for climate at Bloomberg News and author of the weekly Net Zero newsletter. If you're listening to this podcast about climate change solutions but are not yet signed up to his newsletter, then you may not be aware of just how fast the big picture for energy technologies that we're talking about is changing all around us. Hi, Akshat. Hi, great to be here. Perfect. So in the past few months, uh, we have released eight interviews with founders trying to bring innovative products to the market that have the potential to decarbonize India's economy. It's been a great pleasure to learn from these entrepreneurs in a wide range of technology areas, from CO2 capture to graphene batteries and low-cost solar agricultural pumps, from biochar that uses agricultural stubble to battery recycling, from battery swapping to energy efficiency. So we have really covered a wide range of decarbonization options for India and indeed the world. Now, these entrepreneurs have all had unique experiences innovating and bringing their products to the marketplace. They have been helped by different groups of people. They operate in different sectors with their own unique dynamics. They have different set of regulators and regulations that apply to their products. So for the season finale of the podcast, we have carefully considered their experiences and come up with five lessons or learnings that we think are worth thinking about a little further. So for the consideration of our panel today, here's what we have learned. The first lesson was the outsized role of international institutions in India's innovation stories. Most founders we spoke to benefited from either an international education, collaboration, financing, or more. So now, given this trend, here are a few questions or, or things to ponder over. For instance, should we view this type of knowledge and capital mobility you know, globally as a reflection of the relative immaturity of India's energy technology ecosystem? Or is this a strength that should be nurtured? And I think I have a related question that I'll you know, include with this so that we can then open it up to our panelists, which is that, you know, given that uh, recent policy thrusts around Atmanirbhar Bharat, which means self-reliant India, and of course, uh, the Make in India program, which has been uh, around for a few years now, these kind of policy pushes have sought to establish India as a manufacturer of the goods and services that we need. So in this context, what is the role of international collaboration under these frameworks and what, how can India leverage or you know, uh, contextualize what's happening globally with the needs of India's own economies. Okay, let me come in. 
Let me give it a shot. So, uh, Siddharth, I think point is very valid. Okay. Um, internationally, if we look at it, we can, and we should really focus more on the Western world here when we talk about international, is there is a lot of knowledge, a lot of learning, and a lot of innovation that was bred there. That has also happened because if you look at it in a very macro view, if you look at the US, you look at uh, uh, the UK, you look at European countries, they have been focused on research and innovation for a very long time, much longer for sure than what we see in India and Asian countries. So it is very natural that there is innovation leading there much ahead of India. Having said that, I think uh, what, and, and I think they have been also sort of sharing some of the innovation to uh, build ventures and to build interesting products. But ultimately, I think what has happened, if you look at it, is that the innovation and entrepreneurship has grown very, very rapidly in India, specifically. I mean, India is the fastest growing entrepreneurial startup ecosystem in the world. Globally, it is the fastest ecosystem. The second piece I want to also share is that India is also now creating what I call preventive solutions, right? You have the curative, which I just explained, and now you have the preventive. If you look at some of the new startups that we've invested in, you know, startups which are um, uh, a simple one, you know, they are vending uh, tea, you know, the likes of Chai Point and Chaios and all of these. If you just take a, take a step back and look at how they are boiling the tea, they're not using gas, right? They're either on solar or electricity. So even at that very basic level, they are thinking of carbon footprints. They are thinking of clean energy. You look at, so, you know, that is what I would say preventive in some ways, not even creating pollution. So the battery, the whole battery piece, uh, we've invested in a number of them. And it is not only growing, but when we go and talk to policymakers in the country, there is a huge push to say, that why you look at the international models, please innovate here. Because we have to not only innovate in terms of technology, we also have to innovate in terms of business model and pricing. Because these countries have completely different appetites for pricing, different levels at where the consumer is. I mean, what works in the north does not work in the south of this very country. So to me, I think if I look at India, it's actually the epicenter of what can work somewhere else in the world. So entrepreneurs can innovate here, you know, create the MVPs, create the market viable products, create business models, test it out, and then go international. So, and it is it is natural because the Carbon footprints are also created by the way you live, the style, you know, your living style. And India and developing countries live very differently to some of the other countries that we know. So, yes, I think in essence, uh, there is a lot of innovation and R&D and knowledge base that has happened in the Western world and it should continue and it's something which we appreciate. But India has created its own innovation, its own knowledge base, and it's continuing to grow. So I do think that uh, overall, we need to break the geographic barriers and actually say, how do we take innovation from each of these countries, create ventures which can benefit our group?
One thing just to ask if you guys uh, touched on this through the idea of innovation, which might be worth uh, spelling out in some way. And this is just my view of how, when I cover the space, how innovation is interpreted by different audiences differently. When, when we talk about innovation here in Europe or America, it's seen as this fundamental development of technology that will uh, enable step change in, say, the price of batteries or the price of uh, floating wind. Whereas when we think about innovation in the Indian context, it's still innovation, but it's innovation at a micro level because it's absolutely necessary to happen because those types of innovations haven't been thought through or haven't been needed in the developed country context. Uh, and those kinds of innovations require different form of approach, but also different capital uh, requirements. So uh, the sort of fundamental scientific technology developments are more capital intensive. They require an ecosystem that exists here already, whereas the micro innovations that Indian startups have needed don't need that in some way they can leapfrog and make those micro innovations and have been making those through these startups that you've been uh, covering through the series uh, um, that you've run on this podcast. Uh, but I think that flavor of how innovation is seen needs to be uh, understood by, by audiences on both sides of uh, the developed country and developing country divide. And when you say here, you're referring to where you sit right now in London uh, and the rest of the advanced economies. I think it also means that there needs to be you know, perhaps different models of international cooperation. Um, if, company, if countries are going to work together, then they need to have a common language to understand each other's needs. Yeah, I mean, from an academic community side, it has been uh, these, both these kinds of innovation, the sort of fundamental uh, scientific innovation is seen as a higher bar to be achieved, whereas these micro innovations, well, they'll happen anyway. And I think that divide is starting to crumble finally, where there is an acknowledgement on both sides that, no, both kinds of innovations are absolutely important because when we need to scale these technologies to be able to get us to zero, that uh, scaling will only happen if both the macro and the micro innovation work together. You know, Simon, on, on your question about languages, there's a classic example uh, that we face is uh, uh, in, in the phrase technology transfer, and, oh, yeah. which comes up repeatedly. And of course, uh, when Indians, particularly in the government, talk about technology the transfer, they're holding out their hand and saying, write down, you know, write down a formula and give it to me. And uh, when, when the European Union, somebody is talking about technology transfer, what they mean is, um, guys, why don't we figure out a way in which a European company might be able to make a lot of money by, you know, by selling to India, right? And somewhere in between those two things is something that will work for both of us and for the climate, and, but we haven't found that yet. And um, I think the context of the pandemic makes it very clear um, that getting the right definition for technology transfer in place is pretty important um, to solve global problems. Perfect. And, uh, you know, Mihir, if I can, uh, you know, bring you in here, I'd like to also think about, uh, or rather have your thoughts about, you know, this trend of Indian graduates moving abroad to pursue their higher education. Of course, you know, somewhere around the process, uh, if, especially if they're inclined to innovation, there will naturally be an international element to their innovation journeys. Uh, so what do you think about this? Because uh, this is also 
conflated with with our you know age old kind of discussions on on the so called brain drain and so on how do you think india can kind of overcome this and how does this contextualize with this whole atmanirbharta movement that we have going right now right so there are a, a, a bunch of questions here um siddharth and i don't want to sort of uh, privilege one of the others but i so I'll, i'll give you two views first of the on the movement of individuals right um the first view um and i think this is a perfectly reasonable view to have is that um there is uh, to to whatever extent people can um move back and forth between india and centers of innovation and other centers of innovation and finance that helps both right and this is a, a unified problem in some sense and it's good it's great if you can pick up uh, technology connections finance etc from uh, other global centers that works um the second point uh, that i think that a lot of people would make in reply to that is that um we do need to be able to um ensure that entrepreneurship of a particular kind uh, does not um, does not only exist in the group of people who can currently move back and uh, that is a much larger question and i'm afraid that it's not obviously one that is limited you know to renewable energy or to climate sensitive entrepreneurship in particular it's just a general problem um it's uh, it's tough to be able uh, to connect people um who are not met from metropolitan india uh, to pools of finance one way or the other and the government has multiple schemes that attempt to do this but it's not easy right uh, you walk around uh, you know Bangalore or somewhere, and you can look at the people who are who, who are coming up with business plans in the back of you know napkins, the classic whatever, and 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 they're not really people from um, you know rural eastern UP, and by and large, in fact, overwhelmingly not. And in the end, the problems that uh, we have to solve, uh, Siddharth, are the problems of rural eastern Uttar Pradesh, right? Mm-hmm. Where or those areas where two hundred, two hundred fifty million people live, they're energy poor, and if they have to get when they have to get energy rich they have to do it in a green way that's a tough tough problem and it's one that we need people who are familiar with these with that situation thinking about the so people from there ideally and that's not easy to to manage so that's just one point on you know on 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 this moving back and forth where does it fit into this larger idea that as you're right india has been pushing the government has been pushing on self-reliance and so on and so forth um I think it's it's important to recognize that nobody really knows what self-reliance means in this context and um a lot of people interpret it differently even within the government it's you know it's in hindi it's one word in in english it's two words and and you have to, you can't write policy on the basis of that right uh so there is policy that says oh no this is about competitiveness in the global market there is policy that says oh no this is about doing everything at home and these two ideas are maybe contradictory but they can both be called self-reliance one kind of number so um i don't think however that the second kind of self-reliance the stuff that the idea that says you have to do everything in here is going to necessarily work very effectively particularly in um in 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 fields and sectors that require access to frontier technology and that require access to finance and uh, for those you may need to make sure that you you broaden the tube of finance and technology uh, uh into india and not narrow it and then it's up to us i mean then it's up to the entrepreneur then it's up to you know the the, the user what they pick and what price points they will work in the markets etc but you need to make sure the tube is large enough moving finance here moving technology here and you can't let dogma of any kind interfere thanks me here you've talked a little bit there about the 
you know, the policy design or the lack of policy design that can make sure that the, the pipeline of innovations and, and finance are flowing from the right places and to the right people. With a great example of the, the problems that need to be solved in some cases are in rural eastern Uttar Pradesh. And this is something that Padmaja spoke about as well, solving the problems in the, in the local uh, areas where they, where they exist. Now, one of the other lessons that we drew from the, the interviews with the founders that we spoke to is that by and large, you know, they didn't rely on significant government support for, for their innovation work. Uh, they didn't have you know, Indian government grant funding or subsidies for their product. Uh, what was more important to them were sector-specific policies that generate demand for their products. And in some cases, they seem to be hitting a, a ceiling to growth without additional policies. So if we could just shift a little bit to the panel's views on what India is getting right in its energy innovation policy and perhaps reflect on what is the government's role uh, related to setting the market framework in which new ideas can compete and prosper or perhaps other elements such as dedicated finance or, or incubation? I think the Indian entrepreneurial ecosystem has grown and Indian entrepreneurs have grown with, in spite of government regulations not being very supportive in the past, for sure, right? And uh, they've, either gone, they've either just gone around them and figured out what to do. I mean, think about the inverter industry in India, right? The government just did not provide power. We were power deficit as a country, right? And that's how the inverter industry came up. So the entrepreneur who built that luminous inverters is was laughing his way to the bank, right? So uh, I think number one is we've not had a very supportive government in the past. Okay, It has improved over the last few years. I must say that also in the same breath that we are seeing we are seeing doors, policymakers' doors open much more easily. They are at least listening. They are trying. Uh, there's a but, but it's way below what is really required. So my only hope there is that uh, that will accelerate. So the government's role, in my eyes, has been a disabler, but is now moved to the rhetoric of trying to be an enabler, and uh, they need to enable much, much more on the policymaking side. Number one. Number two, if I look at it from government grants, India is not a country which has built innovation on grants. So I don't think grant money is going to increase in this country. I'm sitting on this incubation grant committee. Uh, it's a thousand crores, right? But yes, it will get things ignited. It will get things started off, but it's not going to pave the way for innovation. to come. So overall, what are we going to rely on? We are going to be relying on a lot of private money, be it Indian or overseas. It's going to be a lot of private effort and time and energy and money that's going to make this happen. So that's my view on this. Fantastic. And we're going to give, obviously, the principal scientific advisor the opportunity to, get, to give his view on what the government is doing. But I think it's really interesting to look at the, the founders that are doing well in India, in some cases following a slightly different path. Um, as a result of the, the factors that you've just outlined, Padmaja. And you know, is there, in your opinion, uh, a country 
elsewhere in the world that India can look to for inspiration? Or is it going to have to find its own way because of the specificities? We are a very large country. We are a sixth of the world's population. So the government has its own issues to cater to such a large geographic um, lay of the land, as well as the demography, which is so diverse and so large. So I think we will have to find our own model. And we will have to look at models which are public and private. For instance, let me give you one example. We've just, as IEM, partnered with the government department of biotechnology, right, to in for young, for uh, early stage entrepreneurs to raise money from angels. While it is biotech, what we've managed to do, and we actually had to lobby to do this, is to get clean tech as part of it. Because if you have clean energy and clean tech, you are going to need less medicines and health is going to improve. Now, that was our logic. So we have to be innovative and create our own models. I don't see something like this happening in the West. Uh, there is no angel group in the world which has partnered with the government body. So we've had to find our own models because that's the only way we can unlock innovation and research sitting in government labs and get privately funded and become valuable companies. Congratulations on that, on not only you know, setting up this particular model, but also for getting clean energy into the uh, yeah, yeah into, into this government program. So maybe you know the conversation should be different. Maybe it should be actually be about how other countries will then be able to to learn from what India is doing. Simon, uh, if I may sort of just step in here, I think that one of the um, interesting points that you and Siddharth implied that the uh, um, founders that you spoke to made is that they're, they're looking they're looking for help in the other direction, right? Rather than in helping their supply side, they're looking for help in the demand side. And um, again, this is something that you actually you'll see in multiple different uh, uh, um, sectors. It's not just clean energy. Uh, typically, when people uh, go and speak to the government, what they want is is sectoral help, but they want their demand side help. And 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 that's much more what I think people believe the government should be doing. Partly because this is what we know the government is more capable of doing than providing us with a lot of other support. I will say, however, there are still innovative tweaks to finance that we should be considering. You know, particularly on the debt side. Uh, where, you know, we should be able to figure out with what goes into what we call, for example, priority sector lending in India, which is um, something that is pushed out of the of the lending channel by commercial banks uh, on a priority basis. So there are there are sort of regulatory fixes to our internal financial system that we should be making, and which, again, the government is capable of making. But by and large, I think the government's intervention has to be on the demand side, which is also what you found. We will now move on to the next, the third lesson that, that we have learned. But before we do that, uh, here's a very quick poll for the three of you. So uh, I'll ask a question, you know, if you can just respond with, with maybe a one or two word answer, that would be uh, perfect. So do you think that India will get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? 2070 is, of course, the year that the government of India announced at, at the Glasgow summit. So do you think we'll, uh, you know, meet that target in time or do you think it will happen much later? Uh, perhaps you can start with Mihir. I only have two options, right? Before or after. Or you can, I mean, you could assume that we also get there on time. I'll give you, I'll give you, okay, I'll give you, a, I'll be as short as possible. I'll give you a conditional answer. Okay. If China makes it by 2060, we'll make it by 2070. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, Badmaja, what about you? After. After. And Akshat? 
if china can make it by 2060 we'll make it before fair enough okay so as uh, you know as you'll see and one of the kind of main lesson that we had here is that uh, the entrepreneurs tend to agree with with you which is that um, most of them thought that uh, india will actually you know reach net zero well before 2070 and this of course is not uh, surprising in itself because startup founders tend to be optimists and and they often overestimate uh, change especially in the short run so you know uh, i'll start with akshat because uh, his his i think response was the most interesting here which is what do you think the entrepreneurs know here that policy makers do not so one of the lessons that we've learned through this journey on net zero which is you know a very new concept uh, in a way uh, until 2018 nobody was talking about net zero um is that just generally on climate targets countries that have set targets have then brought those targets forward the 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 clearest example i can give is the uk so when the uk first created its climate change act in 2008 it targeted 80% reduction by 2050 relative to a 1990 yep. baseline and now that target has been brought forward 15 years so uk's target now is 78% reduction by 2035 Uh, it now has a net zero target for 2050 which many of the lawmakers have spoken to say that they are going to bring it forward that that's likely going to happen we are already seeing germany target 2045 as the net zero target and the reason sure. why they are lawmakers this is not uh, uh, the optimistic uh, entrepreneurs these are lawmakers saying this because the way climate targets were set up was that we were aiming for the low hanging fruit getting governments and people and companies uh, oriented towards reducing emissions and then once that happens companies and governments tend to realize that it's easier cheaper in our interest to be able to do this and then they are able to go much farther than uh, it would have been otherwise possible on the entrepreneurial side it's actually you're right they're optimistic they think they can achieve uh, much more than they are able to um and and that's you know that's something we need from a clim- climate uh, or clean tech innovation side uh, but from a from a pure policy making and target setting perspective we have seen that um, um policy makers and and large corporations tend to underestimate their ability to move on a net zero target and then they move faster once they are on track great and uh, mihir since you initially thought that uh, you know india would trail china but change your answer we'd also like to hear from you uh what do you think you know the role of the government should be here should we be uh, creating even more ambitious uh, targets to give these technology visionaries a better chance perhaps of getting there siddharth um, i'm the wrong person to ask because um on on on, twi- on targets that are in 2070 i i i think of these things as as purely imaginary and nice feel good things and i'm concerned about what happens in 2030 and 2035 and 2040 because um unless we start dipping or bending the curve in many of our jurisdictions pretty fast then you know you're going to see pretty absurd um capture and storage requirements coming into play after 2040 and 2045 and all, all this stuff is imaginary we know the tech might exist but it's definitely nobody can imagine this tech on scale so frankly um i'm not i'm, I'm not really interested this is why i'm saying it's conditional If anybody works it out, then yeah, sure, India will adapt it. We'll get it into place, and we will do it at a low at a lower cost than anybody else. All right, that's 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 how we do things. But uh, frankly, 
I'm not interested in 2070. If anyone talks to me about 2070, I switch off. I'm interested in what's happening uh, um, in the next eight to 10 years. And definitely, if I begin to see, um, you know, actual movements towards bending the growth of, uh, bending our curve in, in fossil fuel uh, growth um, and in emissions growth, uh, you know, prior to 2035, I think we're doing fine. I would say um, I'm on Mihir's side here that, you know, as somebody who's a news journalist working on day-to-day -day issues, the short term matters tremendously more than the long term. I would though add the context that because we are talking about energy innovation here, there is a reason why you need long-term targets because certain assets that we are going to build will last not just 30 years, but 50 years, 70 years. We know nuclear power plants can last 80 years. We know coal power plants that have been running for more than 40 years. And so we need to think of those long-term assets and that's why having a long-term target is important. But absolutely right, Mihir is absolutely right that without having very clear short-term targets, uh, none of those long-term targets matter. And I think I couldn't agree more, uh, Akshat, because uh, it's also something at the IEA, you know, that that is uh, in our radar, which is that of course long-term targets, as you say, matter because these assets stay on. Like you, you make a building and that that lasts on for the next several decades, perhaps a century. So, uh, but having said that, it is the next decade, like like Mihir said, which is most critical. And at the IEA, uh, you know, our expert uh, modelers and researchers are tracking. Uh, to, to ensure whether various countries are actually on track to meet these long-term objectives. And I think uh, as we go closer towards you know, the end of the decade, we'll find more information on, on whether that is the case. Yeah, and to complement that, I think what we've seen in, in the last few years is that the, the way that the targets have been framed around this, this number of zero, that is actually something that we can get our heads around, in a sense, what, what zero means better than a 33.6% reduction. Uh, that has brought forward some of those near-term discussions, especially around sectors like heavy industry and uh, long-distance transport, to bring them into the conversation. Because unless they start uh, to move in terms of the, the long-lived infrastructure that Akshat was talking about in this decade, then the target for, for the longer term is probably not within reach anymore. I think there's some significant catalytic effect that the long-term target has in bringing people's minds to the, to the near term. Um, but since we're talking about not only what these clean tech starters, uh, since we're talking about not only what these clean energy uh, startup founders are doing, but also I think we've, we've moved into the realm of you know, the the existing fossil fuel emissions from the, the incumbent players in the system. I want to move to the fourth lesson that we took from our interviews, because something else that struck us about the attitudes of Indian founders in this sector is that they generally want to work with established players rather than disrupt them out of existence. We didn't get the sense that they were trying to, to conquer the world by themselves. Let me start here. I think one reason why this lesson is so clear um, is perhaps because India is a capital-constrained environment. We have heard this not just in India, but in other places where capital is a problem, where startups would much rather prefer to either provide their technology to a bigger player or to provide a platform on which bigger players or bigger companies that have much uh, easier access to capital can build on top of. Um, I don't think if you uh, did not have a capital constraint, uh, companies would want to 
uh, not disrupt uh, existing players. I mean, it's in the entrepreneur's DNA to try and uh, change the ecosystem so that their product and their ideas are going to be the dominant ones. Uh, it's just that access to capital tends to limit their uh, imagination a little bit. Because without money, with, if they don't have revenues, if they don't have enough traction, they can't even raise the next round. So that's one big reason why startups work with large companies. Secondly, the reverse is also happening, just so that you know, that large companies are going intrapreneurial. They are creating company, uh, they are creating teams, startup teams, which are innovating and which are building products. For instance, the Mahindra started EV exactly like that. If you look at Ola, that's how it started. You know, there was a small group of people from within the company which really built it out. I just want to second uh, what Pratnaj said. I think that's absolutely accurate. And in fact, Akshat has also made the same point. It's all about capital. It's all about access to capital. And therefore, if you have access to unlimited capital, you can dream unlimited dreams, right? And uh, some people do. There are people in India who have access to unlimited capital, Reliance Industries, for example. And they dream unlimited dreams of, you know, um, one unit of hydrogen at one, you know, one dollar in, in, by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these are big dreams, right? And that is disruptive. Uh, so if you do have that coming in, that will disrupt the system massively. Um, and, and so the, the broader point uh, is that if you if you don't look just at, at the energy sector, which in the end in India is um, so dominated by uh, you know, government players and government policy, and if you look at manufacturing or you look at mobility, um, there are different models in place, right? So um, uh, I did mention Mahindra's ability to to you know diversify its innovation. Other companies are not so great about this in the automotive sector, and they will be disrupted in one, some, one way or the other, right? And we're beginning to see this now happening in manufacturing, uh, partly, again, through the medium of capital, right? So people who have um, essentially the idea that they will be able to get discounted capital or be access a larger pool of capital if they green their systems, whether they're in cement or other hard-to-abate sectors. Those companies have a clear incentive to put a little bit of effort into disruptive technologies or into thinking how they can apply them in their, in their, um, in, you know, in their supply chains. Uh, we at ORF are working with um, you know, Kearney and, and, the, and the World Economic Forum and trying to put together a CEO's group in India, a climate leader CEO group. And, and, and we're getting a lot of interest uh, from uh, CEOs of hard-to-abate sectors. And the reason is, in the end, because they want to be able to have that in their quiver when they start raising capital for expansion in the next five to seven years. Yeah, and I know you hear that you've written a lot about you know, the importance of a thriving manufacturing sector for, for economic prosperity. So do you see this as going to be one of the main ways that India might be able to navigate the transition by having some of these larger, well-resourced companies move from this being a, uh, a side project to becoming you know, a central part of their, of their business case? Do they have the motivation to make that transition? Um, they absolutely do um, on, a, on a limited level right now. I think we need to expand their motivations, change their incentives. Uh, the, the negative here that I want to flag, Simon, is that we appear to be in a position where we will have to do this without multinationals. Um, and that's a bit of a problem. Um, and that's entirely a product of restrictions in uh, the global north, in the U US and EU. 
And the classic example here is Holcim, which is the big cement maker, um, and was India's yep. largest cement maker till fairly recently. And they've just sold out. And they sold out uh, of the Indian market uh, partly because they want to meet their own internal net zero targets and they don't want to uh, be manufacturing in India when they do that. And that is, on, on a macro level, on a global level, that's really problematic because Holcim has a te- uh, will, ha- will have the technology. They'll be one of the first movers into, into greener cement. Um, they have the finance. Uh, but if they're moved out of the Indian market and sold to Indian players who won't have the technology and the finance, that's going to be a problem. And so we need to make sure that, you know, US, UK, EU, Japanese regulations on their own companies are not such that they're incentivized to move out of markets like India, uh, where the actual battle, well, 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 the larger battle against the future of manufacturing, uh, for the future of manufacturing is being fought. What a, what a brilliant point. It's something that we've written about, about the challenges of uh, what some people call transition finance, uh, being able to make it to uh, countries like India and other emerging market and developing economies. And so here we are towards the end of this conversation with the fifth and final lesson for today's show. Uh, And this one relates to finance. So unlike software and other forms of technology development, clean energy innovation required greater capital upfront and longer gestation periods for these technologies to become commercial. So for these reasons, founders often prefer grant funding or convertible debt rather rather than equity and other forms of capital. The question really is, uh, and, and Padmaja, I'd love to hear your views on this. Uh, are the incentives of angel and other early stage investors in India well aligned with the needs of clean energy startups, especially given these long gestation periods and, you know, and large capital upfront? Okay, so um, Siddharth, let me try and respond to that uh, in a different way. Your, the point, the learning is correct, that it's a long gestation sector. Uh, and you need large amounts of capital, right? So uh, what I have seen, because we've invested in about uh, at least 15 to 20% of our portfolio is on clean energy, right? Uh, The way we have seen our companies grow is that they have taken very, very, very small amounts of grant if available, but largely they have uh, created traction with angel money. Now, the advantage of angel investor money is this is money coming in from private investors from their own balance sheets. They have the ability to be patient and wait for returns, right? And that's a huge advantage for this sector. So they've raised this money. They've raised it as equity and convertible debt mix, not pure debt, and uh, got them got their companies to actually create some revenues and some traction. A couple of, three of our companies have done, they have raised money from institutionals outside of India who are looking at investing in India in the impact space. So the likes of ADB or some of those kind who have invested in early stages of startup, which was very surprising. They've sort of partnered with our funding and put in. So what happens is that for the startup, he's now got access to a far larger pot of money. And if they perform, if they they build revenues and grow, they are able to, you know, raise more capital, either from their existing investors or new investors. So that is the kind of trajectory of money that has been raised. Interestingly, what I've seen, this is very interesting, 
I had surmised when we raised money for these companies from angel investors that they would actually want to either exit or in the next round or the subsequent round, right? In each of these three companies which have raised money from uh, VCs and development funds, the angels have continued to stay. They they are very optimistic on the growth of the sector. On the they like the entrepreneurs and the businesses are doing that, which means that private money is now very key on this sector, which is a good thing, right? So that's how companies have grown. One way to think about this challenge that Indian startups are facing is to look at what clean tech innovation in the U.S. and Europe has been like. In fact, until about five years ago, most of the venture capital funds that were set up for clean tech were not long-term funds. They were very much the Silicon Valley five to 10-year fund that would look to get a company going and exit from the company within that five, 10-year period, which is just not good enough for most clean tech innovation. What has happened more recently in, in the US and Europe is that a number of funds have started that are now looking at a 20-year horizon. A 20-year horizon gives uh, clean tech companies the kind of time they need, the gestation period they need to be able to develop and grow to the potential that they have. So it's not surprising to me that one of the lessons from Indian startups has been that they would rather have grant funding or convertible debt because both of those forms of capital are capital that they can uh, keep with them. Grant is, um, is money that they can keep forever convertible debt is something that they will have access to when they need it. Um, and rather than equity or growth, because it's just harder to get that kind of capital, um, especially beyond the angel round, uh, because the sum is large and venture capital funding in India is still uh, much, much further behind what US and Europe has been able to achieve. Excellent. And at this point, uh, I'd like to bring in Mihir uh, for his thoughts on the macroeconomic situation. So recent developments on inflation rates, on interest rates, on you know, depreciation of the Indian rupee, all of these have some implications on India's clean energy transition. So the question really is that, uh, is this significant enough to, to somehow derail the progress that we have made? Or Mihir, do you think the policy ecosystem is robust enough to ensure that this growth kind of continues into this decade? Thanks, that. That's a great question. I think I want to... Um sort of answer it in two ways. One is to say that on the, on the, on the broad macro level, um, the problem is not if you see, uh, you know, the real problem is that there is a drought of dollars. And that leads to the interest rate issue. That leads to inflation in countries like India. There's not enough dollars coming in, right? And uh, when there's a shortage of dollars, and we've seen this before, actually, 2020, in the initial months of the pandemic, there was a dollar drought. And that set back India's energy transition, I would say, for more than a year. I would say, you know, maybe two and a half years. And you need to ensure that there are sufficient, there is sufficient money coming in. And what we're seeing, in fact, is that at the macro level, people want to put their money in the U.S. People want dollars in the U.S. They're getting good, uh, a safe, safe and good returns there. They want to keep it there. And that macro thing has to be fought through targeted mechanisms of one sort or another. And that's the job of governments, of DFIs, of multilateral development banks, people who sit and talk at that level. And I think that it's very important for, um, you know, for example, for the G20, and India is going to be G20 president next year, to get questions of financing of frontier technologies 
of renewable energy, of clean, uh, of clean energy, um, and equivalent to other things, including health, uh, health tech, on the agenda and try to figure out how you can carve out pathways for finance to continue to flow to them, even in negative environments. And I think one big thing that you've pointed to, which is, you know, in fact, not just a question of the current interest in inflation environment, but a broader question, is um, exchange rate risk. And you mentioned the depreciation of the rupee. And um, we, the reason that we in India or in Eastern Africa or in other places, Southeast Asia, that really matter um, in terms of figuring out uh, answers to hard energy transition uh, questions. Uh, we really are also places that have significant exchange rate risk in the minds of Western investors. And we need to be able to find mechanisms to hedge that risk. And that can only be giant macro things. The World Bank is working on this. They need to work much harder. A lot of other people need to set up these big hedging mechanisms in such a way that if I'm sitting in Northern California and I want to invest in, in a clean energy company, um, I'm willing to do it in, in, in Bangalore, in Nairobi, in Jakarta, as much as I am in, 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 the San, in San Jose. And, and, and the question of depreciation of, of exchange rate risk does not figure in my calculations. And just to add uh, context to Mihir's uh, sharp observation there, a few years ago, there was, um, I, I believe it was an IE analysis, um, but we've had this gap between what we need to invest in the clean energy transition uh, globally and what has been uh, yeah, what has been invested uh, in the clean energy transition. That gap was large. It was in the trillions of dollars. That gap still exists. But there's been a stunning change, which is that developed countries are actually investing as much as they should be. Okay, they may not be investing in the right places, uh, proportionally in all the sectors, but they are investing sums that are matching up to the uh, energy transition challenge. The biggest gap, however, that still remains is that trillions of dollars that need to go in developing countries isn't going. And so it is absolutely a macroeconomic challenge where there needs to be more funding going into developing countries. And it has to be, as Mihir says, enable these investors with capital to be able to invest as freely um, in California as they would in Bangalore. Yeah, I think that connection is is super interesting. and it you know, it's something we laid out in the report on financing clean energy transitions that you just mentioned, Akshat. But the fact that some of those lessons apply equally to the innovation stage, to the uh, to the entrepreneurship, the um, yeah, the, even the research and development in those countries, in emerging and developing markets, in a way that they don't so much. Sorry, in the developed world, uh, in terms of exchange rate risk and uh, and interest rates and other things. I think that's something that I've taken away from the conversations we've had for this podcast. Thanks. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks, Simon. Uh, thanks, Akshat. Thanks, Padmila. Thanks, uh, Thanks for putting out this series. I think highlighting Indian innovation has been very important uh, in the energy transition. Uh, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, Siddharth and Simon, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. I enjoyed myself and very, very incisive and innovative thoughts from Mihir and Akshat. Was it, I was really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure you. was all ours. And this has been another one of those great conversations, for which I'd like to thank Mihir, Padmaja, and Akshat 
but demonstrating their capacities to speak with fluent expertise across all five of the lessons that we've asked them to respond to. Thank you so much to each of you for being with us today. And to listeners, there is much, much more of their wisdom that you can find in their writing, newsletters, and other activities. And we'll add as many links as we can to those in the show notes. Thank you. And as mentioned earlier, we were fortunate to be able to put many of these same points to the principal scientific advisor to the government of India, a man who has an almost unique overview of the policy landscape that is relevant to this discussion. Here's what he had to say. Welcome to the show, Professor Sood, and uh, many congratulations on your appointment in April this year uh, to such a prestigious role. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate having me on this show, and it gives me an opportunity to share our perspective on some of the issues you have been discussing. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, for our listeners, uh, Professor Sood is a decorated physicist uh, starting his career at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. And uh, he went on to publish more than 450 peer-reviewed papers and journals on topics related to nanosystems and soft matter. He also holds several patents uh, and is a fellow of the Royal Society and has been awarded the Padma Shri, which is the fourth highest civilian honor in India. So, Professor Sood, once again, welcome. Uh, could you tell us uh, you know, a little bit about the responsibilities of uh, the PSA and you know, what have you been doing in the last three months on the job? And of course, relatedly, you know, what do you uh, hope to accomplish over the next two years? Yeah. So, see, the principal scientific advisor to the government of India is my title. And it actually says everything in these three words. So we uh, have the responsibility to advise government of India and uh, to the prime minister on uh, what are the challenges country faces, which can be tackled by SNT intervention. Now that necessarily involves uh, interacting uh, with all the science ministries. We have six of them, but. Above that, we have many ministries which are not so-called science ministries, but which use a lot of science and technology. For example, textile. For example, uh, civil aviation. Uh, Many things. Animal husbandry. So they do not come uh, quote-unquote science ministries, but nevertheless, they have uh, all SNT issues. So we are also interacting with them And our role is also to bring synergy in the work of all the science ministries. So we have done uh, many things in the last three months, have been a very hectic period for me. And uh, uh, for example, we were asked, uh, we asked the line ministries to identify their technology problems, which can be dealt with technology. So our office, did the mapping of those given technology questions, problem sets, to the appropriate science ministries. Because we have the overall vision of what is the science ecosystem in our country. Thanks for that. And I know that you personally have a keen interest in energy uh, topics. So how does the, the topic of, of energy, especially clean energy, Uh, come across your desk under your different roles? So actually, when we say clean energy, uh, 
uh, what we have is a combination of many technologies actually it has for example it will have green hydrogen uh, one vertical we have another vertical called electrical electric mobility which will also be under that then we will have carbon capture that is another vertical so uh, so it's important to be engaged with this uh, snt innovation uh, system and also contribute to it in what way we can bring people together what way policy interventions are required for example in electric mobility there is a huge requirement of even regulations to make charger charging stations which looks so simple a thing but if it does not exist we need to do it so we are doing that we have done that already and this has been announced by uh, bis which is our arm for standards now if we have green hydrogen we can have the use of green hydrogen in fertilizers refinery sector we can blend it with natural gas we can also use it in steel making you know in the reduction process so yeah. it is it is no brainer to say that if we have a good source of green hydrogen for example as recent in news as this week there is a news item from my alma mater my parent institute indian institute of science they have announced from biomass they are producing green hydrogen so it is on the web you can uh, google it it has just been made public so what they have done from the biomass they convert to syngas by putting the right oxygen and steam yep once they do that then they can process syngas to recover hydrogen and if, if you uh, read their uh, press announcement they are able to claim actually more hydrogen from a given uh, biomass than a conventional way not via the syngas so that is a big development if that is the uh, because that is how the r&d labs can really impact it for and that technology already is being done on a pilot plant by our company called ongc you know that oil natural yeah. gas commission and they are going to make quarter ton plant based on that and now if you look at let's say the road transport because we know that 15% of total carbon dioxide emission almost 15% come from transport sector now for indian condition if you look at indian condition actually 50 to 60% comes from long distance trucking not the city traffic in our case unlike europe and us we do not have large fleet of trucks with a given vendor it's not like 500 trucks are there with one vendor and you can do it our vendors are small mostly five six trucks so what happens the same truck will go from delhi to bangalore okay same driver same helper and so on now if that is the case you will have a problem if you want to convert to electrical vehicle because then you will need some other solution because electrical vehicle may go up to 2 300 km at best 
So the idea is use the digital technology and the right kind of charging uh, stations or the battery swapping mechanisms so that the trucking can be done on electric mobility. That is not happening uh, in any major way right now. So this is one example of innovation uh, which uh, will depend on few technologies, uh, digital tool, registration, a lot of things have to be done, but it can be done. It's not uh, rocket science, uh, which can be done. The trucking example is, is fantastic. It's something that we and many other people have identified as being you know, not only a, a critical section of the economy that needs to be decarbonized in order to meet our, our climate goals, but also one that is going to be likely solved by, by technology that we are uncertain about today. It's not, it's not totally clear which is going to be the winning route, and it may be something that nobody has thought about. Uh, one of the roles, obviously, of, of innovators and the types of people that we've been speaking to in this series is you know, where are the ideas coming from that people are, have dismissed as being impossible? So, Professor Sood, the, of course, you mentioned some of the technological you know, priority areas uh, for India. Uh, but what do you think uh, should India's technological aspirations be in a larger global context, given that several countries around the world are now pursuing net zero targets? Of course, India itself has uh, announced a target of 2070 by which we hope to reach net zero carbon emissions. So what should be the role of innovation in all of this and what should be the role of Indian innovation in the global context? I'll tell you two possibilities, uh, two uh, things which could be uh, where India can take a lead. One is digital tools. Digital tools in various sectors, whether it is efficient use of batteries, where it is efficient use of fuel cell, where it is efficient use of uh, given technology for energy employment. So many digital tools is a very uh, powerful platform which is a critical to decarbonization because it will bring more efficiency. Where I think Indian uh, uh, innovation, Indian R&D can take a lead. We have seen that in the past, uh, how we have been helpful uh, to the uh, global community. Uh, and in energy, we think it can play a very vital role. Second area where India uh, has a potential to contribute is in materials engineering, material science, new materials, repurposing the materials, nano materials, which is close to my heart. Uh, the point I'm saying is that if you look at new materials, be it graphene, be it other two-dimensional material, be it uh, 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 other uh, uh, combinations of this 1D and 2D hybrids, all those materials have strong potential in energy sector, strong potential in uh, related technologies which will lead to decarbonization, whether it is storage, whether it is mobility, whether it is renewable, whatever you have under this vertical, materials is the future, if you think about it. 
and we you know that uh, in uh, battery technology how everyone is talking of crisis which world will face after n number of years with lithium on cobalt now n can vary from country to country uh depending on the political situation and can vary so what i feel is that uh, uh, india as a country has strength in materials and uh, in digital tools so these two i will definitely feel have a potential well so we have batteries we have the digital side we have materials like graphene um and the other the mineral inputs to to batteries i mean i know who would agree completely with what you've just said professor sud and that's akshay who we talked to from log9 materials in one of our episodes who's working on graphene but also you know ashwin who is working at battery pool on some of the the digital aspects of uh, of battery swapping and and darshan at nunam who's looking at recycling of of battery materials so it it feels as if there is activity already in many of the areas that you've you've talked about uh, among india's innovators but you know to what to what extent can the government steer the innovation towards the the areas that you've identified as being uh, most important i'll give you one example uh, because uh, something on recycling recycling batteries now what we need to bring in recycling actually is a policy matter because so far there is no definitive policy on discarding the batteries and recovering it most of it is done in unorganized sector in some countries there is a organized way of doing it and there is a cost to pay if you don't do it it's a penalty yeah. so we need to bring that in our country for example because the very precious material which is there in batteries be it rare earth be it cobalt be it lithium all that is so valuable that uh, you just cannot really look at the convenience actually it is a must for humanity it's not a question of uh, luxury i mean the days of use and throw are gone which was so very well mastered by the west right we can't do that anymore i mean indians have been very good at reusing things you must have seen but we need to do in a organized manner actually so okay. i have a big hope that that is what would be happening soon absolutely professor so in fact this uh... Uh, aligns very closely to some of the observations we have made which is that it is ultimately the policies in the specific sectors that drive innovation as much or perhaps more than even innovation policies specifically so uh, i think uh, it would be uh, very useful for uh, for generating more and more activities in these sectors so uh, one of the other things that we you know observed as we uh, as we interacted with our innovators is that they largely came from prestigious universities and and uh, there was a big role to play in uh, india's legacy institutions such as iits and iisc uh, the question is that 
how do we ensure that the next round of clean energy startups emerge in smaller towns and the hinterland see again i said this is what you are saying is very important because we have large number of universities large number of engineering colleges uh, where we have our uh, bright students now many things have to be done it's not one or two things and uh, what i what i'm happy to see siddharth is already some things are happening i'll give you uh, one example from our office office of psa has what are called city clusters so what we have done we have started six city clusters in in six cities and two are in the pipeline which will get launched very soon so for example we will have we have a city cluster in hyderabad we have a city cluster in bhubaneswar we have city cluster in pune where there is no iit there is no isc so what is happening is we are trying to bring many many of these unique so city cluster actually is a combination of all the r and d institutes uh, uh, startups and uh, relevant uh, uh, industry partners as a part of that cluster already we have huge business uh, startups come up and they are doing extremely well and some of them are actually in small cities so they are not in big cities so what we need actually is the enabling mechanism there is nothing deficit in those other places it is the enablers we have to create and enablers is where our office comes in we should not downplay some iits or isc just because others are not we can't pull them but we have to raise the other one up not the other way around we bring everyone down no that's not absolutely that. so we I are doing that. that we are doing that uh, what i feel so positive uh, in uh, all this it's happening already so this our city cluster concept is only two and a half year old only two and a half but please don't forget one and a half years was covid or two years were covid mm-hmm. only all nine right. six months back we have come out of uh, this uh, fear so it's a remarkable progress absolutely so in fact uh, you know to the point that uh, we should elevate other institutions to the level of iits i in fact think that even iits are a product of democratizing innovation in the country after all you know the the students there come from all parts of the country including the villages so in in many ways uh, it is a way for us to ensure that innovation trickles down to to the grassroots absolutely and i would also like take this opportunity to uh, tell you there are other seven isers i i s e r indian institute of science education and research which are uh, which were started to be equivalent to iits or basic science so that they are already now 10 year old it started only recently and again very very bright faculty have come very bright students come and they are already making an impact in our so they will be like our isc soon and professor sud it sounds like your office as many others have have identified that in india startups that are coming out of these research institutions um, and maybe even international universities uh, are going to play a, a fundamental role in in india in terms of 
creating technologies and, and scaling them up. Do you share that vision in yeah, terms of the, the, the key role of startups compared to other companies? I, I, I cannot agree more. Answer is very clear, yes. And our office goal is how to amplify deep tech startups. That's where uh, the s and can be used uh, more effectively. Of course, every startup is important. I'm not saying that. But in our domain, I would like to see more deep tech startups uh, making uh, into big success. And that's where we will try to bring in all the relevant uh, interventions required. And we are looking at it. Fantastic. And do you have a message for the, 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 the bright young researchers who are currently working on a, on a new idea around uh, low carbon energy? I think the message is actually very clear that uh, if you do not have a contribution to sustainability, because the low carbon thing is really needed for sustainability, it will not sustain itself, your startup. Your startup can sustain if you sustain sustainability. And I, I do not see any confusion in the mind of young people that uh, sustainability is a very big thing to reap. So that's where I'm saying uh, future will lie. Without sustainability, it will be short term. And let's not forget that sustainability also encompasses economic sustainability, which includes uh, energy access as well as and, uh, and livelihoods of people in India. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, you said it uh, absolutely correctly on the top. So with that, uh, thank you, Professor Sood, uh, for sharing your valuable time with us. And I think uh, there, there are a lot of uh, thoughts there for, you know, for us to ponder about and, and discuss further. But I think you have left us with uh, much to think about and definitely also words that could potentially inspire the next round of innovators. So thanks very much once again. Thank you so much. Uh... Uh, both of you, Simon and uh, Siddharth, all the very best in your efforts and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. You have been listening to the final episode in this first season of Innovation Frontlines by the International Energy Agency. Please do listen to all the episodes archived on the Innovation Frontlines podcast feed. And if you like them, give us a review on your preferred podcast platform or a shout out on social media. You can reach out to us if you have feedback, ideas on what we could focus on next, or indeed tip-offs about exciting innovations. Our institutional Twitter handle is at IEA, and I'm on Twitter at S-I-J Bennett. And I'm at Siddharth3. You'll have the spellings of our names in the episode notes. We've had a huge amount of fun making this podcast. I mean, it really has been a terrific ride, but it wouldn't have been possible without our incredible team. That would be Rakesh Kamal and Maquin Fernandez of Suno India. Rob Stone at the IEA. Mariam Aliabadi, who was also at the IEA. Jad Mawad, the IEA's Head of Communications. And Jad, you can have your enormous fancy microphone back now. And of course, the analysis and insights we cited through the course of this season was the work of several of our brilliant colleagues at the IEA. There are too many of them to name, but you know who you are. And finally, thank you, listeners, for tuning into this season. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.